Boom, there it is, ladies and gents. We're ready to rock and roll as we root on USA. Had to pause the game for a second so we can do a little bit of business talk. We're talking valuating a business, so let's jump into this one. If you want to know what your business is worth or how to set it up, this one's for you. Here we go. Shut up and sit down. Look, a business can give you everything you want in life. Prestige, wealth, freedom. It can also take everything away from you. This show is for those who are willing to take that risk. These are the real-life stories of entrepreneurs. But before we start, I have one small favor to ask. Please leave a comment. It can be advice, critiques, tips, feedback, or share this with someone because your engagement is the most valuable and most powerful form of social currency. So thank you, and welcome to another episode of Business Plus! All right, ladies and gents, when you start a business, you should begin with the end in mind. How are you going to exit this business? Building a business you can walk away from is the objective of elite entrepreneurs, and part of exiting is the valuation of your business. There are many ways to evaluate a business, but when it comes to investment banks, uh, the truth lies in the numbers. So let's get ready to talk valuations, mergers, and acquisitions with Mr. Channing Hamlin. <laughs> Mr. Hamlet, welcome to the program, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right, let's talk about this. Uh, in my class, we I teach a class called Financial Algebra. It's a lot of life skills. Uh, and then we also jump into some business stuff as well. Um, one of the fun things that we do in class is we talk, we watch Shark Tank, and then we create some marketing campaigns for the different products we see on, on Shark Tank. But cool. some of the things that really stick out to me, because I know my kids look at those numbers with, you know, like question marks in their eyes, they don't quite understand is what is evaluation? You hear them talk about it all the time on Shark Tank. They come in, they ask for a certain amount of money for a certain amount of equity, and that somehow equates to a valuation. So I'm kind of laying it out here for you. So can you start with uh, what is evaluation? And then how'd you get into this space? Yeah, so... Um it's interesting. Evaluation, uh, it's, it can be really complex, but quite simply, it, evaluation is, you know, what is the company worth? Um, and, and there's a lot of different techniques that can get used to come up with evaluation, specifically with Shark Tank. Most of those companies are early stage companies where um, the investor isn't necessarily investing in the value of the company today. The, the discussion about evaluation, investing in an early stage or venture company is as much about at the end of the day, when we sell or exit this business, who, who gets what? And so in an early stage company, if you if you kind of say, look, I raised five million at a $10 million pre-money valuation, I have a $15 million value. It doesn't necessarily mean your company is worth 15 million that day. What it means is the investor who invested 5 million divided by 15 owns one third of the business. And so then the way a Shark Tank investor is looking at this is if I own a third of the company in my example, um, what am I likely to get as far as a return on my investment two years, three years, five years, 10 years uh, when this sells? Um, and so really in the early stage companies in Shark Tank, it's as much about at the end of the day, when you exit, who gets what? It's not necessarily what the company is worth. That's really the basis for that discussion, uh, completely separate from a mature established business where a business owner or a group of shareholders is thinking about the selling the company today. 
where really the the person who's going to purchase that company and operating it going forward is going to write a check for that value um, value today. They're they're similar but different discussions, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense because uh, it's kind of like kids growing up, right? They start off as uh, as infants, they get to toddlers, and then they they become uh, young children, then they're adolescents, teenagers. We all have phases in our life, and I, uh, a business naturally has its own phases. It needs a little help at the beginning, so exactly. the valuation might be different versus when you're yep. exiting. Um, what that's going to look like. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into the space? What's your criteria here? You know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting journey. Long, long story short, I graduated with a technical degree from college and um, always was interested in business and got into um, investment banking a couple years out of college. And I worked at a group um, on the East Coast called Leg Mason and mostly focused on kind of general corporate finance stuff with a real emphasis on mergers and acquisitions. And most of the work I did in the early years of my career was helping business owners sell their companies. And the average transaction I worked on or the transactions I worked on were kind of between 10 million and a billion in value. Most of those were sort of family held or entrepreneur owned businesses and really fell in love with helping families and entrepreneurs when it came time to exit their companies. Um, so that was the early part of my career. Uh, then I switched gears after working for seven or eight years and worked at a private equity firm where we invested in and bought companies. And while I was there, we invested in about 20, 20 companies or so. Um, and then uh, through some family circumstances, moved out to the West Coast and kind of took a little bit of an entrepreneurial journey where I've started um I've started a couple of firms that do investment banking and valuation. The current firm I'm at, Objective, I joined about 10 years ago. And we have a we have a group that does business appraisal. Uh, we have about 10 folks doing that. And then we have about 15 people doing investment banking where we're representing business owners um, selling their companies. And I've been doing this um, coming up on 30 years now somehow. It's hard to imagine. Man, time flies. So you've yeah, been no all, all around. You, you've been at the beginning where you're creating, uh, where you're investing in companies at the very beginning of their of their life, the Shark Tank era. Um, you've been at the exit side. You've been even on the building the investment banking side to evaluate a lot of these different companies. So let's start from the beginning. Then we we already started with you know what is the type of valuation needed for a for a startup. Um, so what are some of the, the like negative sides of that? Cause I, and for me, it's like, you know, every time I watch shark tank, uh, there's, there's two trains of thoughts. One that you need to raise revenue. And the other thought is you're looking for specific partners to come in and help grow that particular business, <clears throat> but you're also giving up equity in doing so kind of hinders you. It, now that you've been in at the beginning all the way through to the end, what are some some little maybe caveats or questions or things that newer businesses should be thinking about when they're looking to raise capital while also having that end in mind? You know, it's a it's a great question. And it's it's a it, there's a lot um, there's a lot that goes on with it. I think um, I think the the biggest thing the, the biggest thing that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of come come in thinking is like, hey, this investor is going to write me a check and then I'm going to go and use their money to do whatever I do and build my business. Um, and so I think that most investors typically want to have 
you know, a fairly significant amount of involvement in the business and a lot of protective provisions and, you know, other terms and things like that. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs make mistakes with not really thinking that through. It's really exciting at the beginning to raise money, but really having the discipline to take a step back and think three years down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road and understand like, hey, what is it I'm signing up for? Like, for example, the private equity firm that I work for, um, we invested in a number of companies. And this is a very common thing with investors. We invested in a number of companies where we would we would make an investment. And since we're a fund and an investor, our goal is different than the company we've invested in. The, the owner or entrepreneur's goal is like, hey, I'm really excited about operating my company. I want to build it. I want to grow it. I want to do something cool here. The investor is like, hey, I'm giving you some money today and I want to make a financial return on my investment. And so the, the valuation is set up so that the investor can make a financial return. And, you know, that typically makes sense to the entrepreneur. It makes sense to the investor, et cetera. However, there are a lot of other terms there that are really important. Um, most investors will ask for some protective provisions, some covenants. Um, many investors will have the right or the ability to sell their shares back to the company. And it's easy as for an entrepreneur to, be, to sort of like, oh, I'm just gonna kick the can down the road and I'll worry about that later. However, five years goes by pretty quick. And in five years, if the company hasn't quite made the progress that the entrepreneur or founder wanted, or if things aren't going well, or, or if they're really excited about where things are going, the investor can show up one day and be like, oh, hey, I've decided to sell the company or I've decided to do this or I've decided to do that. And you you gave that right away five years ago when you took their money. And so really taking a step back and understanding all of the terms and all of the strings that strings attached that come with that initial investment, that's probably one of the largest mistakes I see you know, entrepreneurs and founders make. Uh, on the other side of that, um, as an entrepreneur and a founder, it's hard to raise. It's hard to raise money, and I think just recognizing that the money comes with strings attached, and understanding truly understanding what you're signing up for, is really important. When I've seen, in, I've seen a lot of situations where investors and entrepreneurs aren't necessarily getting along and aren't aligned, and usually it stems from some sort of um, misalignment right from the beginning in terms of an understanding of the terms and making sure they make sense. So that's like. Um, that's like the biggest thing that I tell people to look for. And then I think the second thing in terms of the question you asked was around valuation, um, around valuation. And I think, you know, every company is different. Every industry is valued differently. And um, investors are typically doing, um, they're looking at other similar investments they've made or other similar investments they're aware of in terms of, you know, how much money am I investing? How much of the company do I need to own? How big can this be? What's the likelihood of success, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think as a, a founder or entrepreneur raising money, you know, really working on your pitch so that as you're presenting it to the investor, um, being realistic about the size of the opportunity and doing as much as you possibly can to demonstrate that it's highly likely that you're going to be successful and make it feel as real as real as possible. And that's why you 
that's one of the reasons you mentioned revenue traction. You know, the, one of the biggest things you can do if you start a company is have some traction in the market because then it's no longer an idea. It's proven and customers are buying it. And so the more traction you can have, the easier it is to convince investors that the opportunity is real, it's happening and that they should jump in. Yeah. Once you get that energy up, people are excited. It gets a little bit easier. Um, you mentioned, and, and like the, the main <clears throat> point I feel I got out of that big investors are, I mean, uh, people who are raising capital should pay attention to the fine print, get a lawyer, get an attorney, have a team, take a look at the fine print, completely understand what you're getting along with the, uh, the the money, the investment capital that you're getting when you raise funds. Um, from the investor side, what kinds of terms or recourse do they have? Because I would be worried, especially with a startup, the failure rate of startups are so high. So sometimes taking a gamble on a company that is pre-market or hasn't actually sold, maybe they're in tooling phase, maybe they have patent pendings, maybe they're early, early on, doesn't necessarily mean that they're guaranteed success afterwards. The market might not be there or for whatever reason, uh, things might pop up. So as an investor, what kinds of terms and recourses are built into some of these uh, mergers, acquisitions, these different uh, fundraising that allows them to come back and grab some of that or maybe sell that company like you were kind of explaining? Yeah. Um, in a, you know, it's interesting. We've spent a lot of time talking about early stage investments, but even in a later stage company, when they're, when the owner is thinking about selling the company, um, the, the buyer typically has the, ask the seller to, to sign a number of representations and warranties. So we always, when we're working with a business owner selling their company, we're always talking to them. There, there are two really important terms. One is, how much are you selling your company for? And then the second one is what post what post transaction liability are you retaining? Um, it, so the the buyers typically ask the seller to sign representations and warranties and hold money back in escrow and have the ability to the extent that liabilities come up in the future to claw back money from the seller. And so really, you know, really understanding. Um, really understanding that and and what you're signing up to, again, is really is really important in the sale. Um, in the early stage company market, you know, when you really think about it, and on, and I think Shark Tank kind of applies. A lot of the Shark Tank companies are just, you know, very very early, and they're raising their first money from investors. And if they don't spend that money wisely, or if things don't work out with the company, um, often there's not a lot of value left at the end of the day. So the recourse that the investor has doesn't, from a practical standpoint, doesn't necessarily matter, but the money does come in different, you know, in different flavors. Um, some, and I don't watch Shark Tank a lot, but the few times I've seen it, a lot of the investors in there are talking about investing through a convertible note where they're going to ask where they're, they're going to have, like a security interest in the company's assets. So if the company defaults on the note, the investor has the ability to come in and kind of come in. Sorry about that. No worries. The investor has to come in, come in and foreclose and take over the assets. So there are other forms of securities, um, to, whether it's a safe note or preferred stock or equity investments that give the company and the founder a little bit more latitude in terms of um, 
control over the asset going forward. And, you know, that's not necessarily my um, area of expertise. That's something that an attorney should really be working on and thinking about. Let me ask you about the changing economy because uh, interest rates are going up, which means capital is just going to be more expensive. So to borrow money is just going to be downright more. It's going to cost you more money, um, which means liquidity is getting more and more difficult. And so I, I feel like there's uh, on the one sense you have an investor pool that may be drying up um, or looking for more specific investments that are probably not burning through cash that are that are cash flow positive, probably. Um, but on the other side, we're in an economy also where there's a lot of small businesses that are going to be closing. So the mergers and acquisition aspect of it might be pretty cool to scoop up some additional pieces of, of your own industry and kind of start building your own little conglomerate or or buying multiple I don't know, like plumber shops or construction shops. A lot of these small uh, solopreneur companies that are kind of uh, they're either going to age out because their owner's on the way out or we have an opportunity to buy them out. Um, what's your take on where the economy is and how's it affecting mergers acquisitions? You, you know, it's a, it's a super interesting question. And, you know, we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about it internally at our firm, both in our valuation practice and in our mergers and acquisitions practice, we're spending time talking to our clients about it. And it's, you know, I think definitely it's a fluid and evolving situation, but generally, you know, generally speaking, kind of what we're, what we're seeing is there's a couple things going on. You know, we're, we're kind of, you know, knock on wood coming out of this global pandemic where the government did a lot of things to stimulate the economy. And there definitely have been winners and losers through that. So almost any company you look at today was impacted in one way, shape or form by the pandemic and the government stimulus. You know, a, lo a lot of companies were, negatively impacted a lot were positively impacted and so in the in the normal environment you would look at a company and you look at their sort of historical financial performance and that would be sort of like hey if they've if they've been doing x in revenue in the past and they've been growing by this amount you would kind of expect that sort of trend to continue we're in a situation right now where you can't it's harder to look at the past to predict the future because of the pandemic, like for example, e-commerce companies really accelerated during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. so a lot of the people who owned e-commerce companies were like, oh, hey, this is the new normal. I'm gonna be growing at 75% a year forever. I'm worth a billion dollars, <laughs> I wanna sell. And the, the buyers of those companies or the investors in those companies are like, no, I don't think so. You know, the government printed a bunch of money. Consumers aren't going to retail. Once the pandemic's over, it's going to go back to normal. And we truly don't know what's going to happen with your business. We're going to be more conservative on the valuation. And then you had the the, the flip side where companies were impacted negatively by COVID because they were shut down or you know customer demand was low and then it's coming back. And so it's really hard to look historically at companies um, to understand sort of what, the, what they're going to be going forward. So that's just a complexity in and of itself that we've been dealing with for the last kind of 18 to 20, 18 to 24 months. Then layer on top of that, um, increasing inflation and rising interest rates, uh, along with a drop in the stock market, um, we're seeing pressure on, you know, we're seeing it more difficult for buyers to access capital. You know, the, 
that not only is not only is getting a bank loan more expensive, um, the banks are not as generous with lending money right now as they were 12 months ago. And so what I think what we've seen, what we've seen is there's been in general kind of downward pressure on valuations. Um, so it's it's harder to sell a company. It's harder to sell a company now because there's less capital available now than there was six months ago. And then we've also seen valuations come down. Um, however, you know, what I would say is I started doing this whole, you know, valuation investment banking journey 27, 28 years ago, whatever it was, you know, at, at that point in time, the rule of thumb was that good companies were, would sell for kind of five or six times EBITDA. What we've seen is those same companies 25 years later were selling for 10 to 12 times EBITDA. There was more capital available. Interest rates are low. That there's a lot of money that's flown in that that's come into private equity. The stock market was high, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now coming into this newer environment, which we've been in for six to nine months now, depending on kind of how you look at it, you know, valuations have come down. But they're they're not back to you know 25 year ago levels. They're still high relative to historical, you know, they're still high relative to historical norms. And so what I what I kind of see going on with the economy is, you know, we're not going to have the you know 2021, you know, massive valuations and free flowing money, but you know we fully expect to have kind of just a. A, a normal level of capital available, normal level of valuations, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the second thing that we're seeing is it's very industry and situation specific. I was talking to, um, I was talking to a friend of mine that works at a private equity firm yesterday, and what they're seeing is a lot of the companies, in some spaces, kind of going into a tougher economic environment. Uh, are are turning their attention to acquisitions for to drive growth, and so there's more and more pressure on public companies and you know private equity owned companies to do acquisitions to drive growth, which put which you know is a really nice tailwind for business owners that are thinking about selling their companies. So in some sectors, you know in some sectors valuations have remained as robust as they were, you know, through 2021. In other sectors. Um, in other sectors, investors and buyers are being more cautious. And so I would say, you know, generally speaking, valuations are down. It's a little bit harder to raise capital. Um, it doesn't seem like it's a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. And then it's also situation and sector specific. So that multiplier, though, uh, it, it, it's still relatively good. We have ups and downs on what that multiplier could be, but it's yeah. still on the higher end from what I'm understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, absolutely. I think um, what we're seeing in, in the, um, in, and I guess there's like the venture capital kind of shark tank venture capital market. Um, my understanding is that there's still a lot of money available. All of the venture firms and investors have a lot of money available to invest. It's high relative to historical norms. So there's still money available. Um, valuations have come down, but you know there are still a lot of transactions and investments taking place. Um, I think there's a focus on companies that have a view towards cash flow break even and profitability sooner rather than later. 
Um, and obviously there are, you know, some sectors like um, crypto and stuff that are a little bit out of favor, but generally speaking, that market's robust. And then in a in the other market, like the mergers and acquisitions, private equity market, private equity firms have more have a massive amount of capital that they're managing. And their job is to put their money to work through good investments. And so um, while valuations are down a little bit, there's still really strong demand um, for investments and for investments in good companies. So I don't expect to see I don't expect to see like a massive decline in, you know, multiples or deal flow or transaction volume like we might have seen, you know, in the, you know, in the credit crisis 10 years ago, et cetera. Well, that's good. That's definitely better to hear that than the other way around. Let me ask you about uh, something. It might be industry, industry specific, obviously, but um, employees versus outsourcing. Uh, I, I live in the state of California. I'm in San Diego, California. Uh, they're talking about even fast food uh, workers going up to $22 an hour. Um, and I don't think a lot of people quite understand. Minimum wage sounds cool if you're a minimum wage. Not so cool when you're trying to run a profitable business. So I keep telling people, I'm like, say goodbye to that dollar menu. It's, it's going to be out of here pretty soon. But I also know there's a lot of companies who are outsourcing their employment as best as they possibly can to different countries where they don't have to pay the outrageous uh, minimum wage taxes, including a lot of the Social Security, Medicare, and all the other uh, fees that are associated with having employment. Uh, when you have buyers looking at different companies, are they looking at some of these payroll costs and you know leaning more towards outsourcing uh, employment, or does it not really even matter when you're looking at mergers and acquisitions? You know, it um, it it matters. Um, it matters quite a it matters quite a bit. Um, and I think, you know, just years ago, like 15 years ago, I worked with a, a public company that was a, um, offshore outsourcing company. They had, um, they, they had a large employee base in, in the Philippines and they were, we were helping them acquire companies in the United States that were doing kind of call center customer service, back office, administrative processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, these companies in the United States um, do, doing this work at the time were, were struggling to find, you know, well-educated employees that were excited about doing that work. And so they were, their, their growth was limited. Their growth was limited because they couldn't find employees. So our client was able to acquire companies like this and then use a, a labor pool in the Philippines to um, help those companies step on the gas and drive growth. Um, so I think that the outsource part of the outsourcing part of the outsourcing is there can be some favorable labor rates in other jurisdictions. Um, and in California, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies leave um, leave the state to to set up shop in other areas of the country where. Um, you know, cost of living and labor rates are lower. Um, we're also seeing we're also seeing um, we're also seeing companies use um, offshore labor. We're also seeing companies really focus on their core competency and outsource things to you know outsource things that are not core to their business in the interest of you know efficiency and cost savings. A lot of companies are using um, outsourced accounting you know, outsource accounting functions, outsource CFO functions, um, outsource this, out, outsource that. 
and it's not it's not necessarily just a cost savings. It's uh, efficiency, management, attention, bandwidth, etc. Um, one of the things to to come back to your question specifically, one of the things buyers are looking at um, is, you know, I've, I'm I'm looking at investing in or buying this company. You know, how can I help the company either improve its profitability or um, improve its growth or both? And if a company is um, if a company is not utilizing outsourcing, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, often there's a, there often there are ways to drive growth and efficiency through outsourcing. And so I've been involved in a lot of those different discussions across a lot of different industries uh, between buyers and sellers. And you know, I've also seen um, outsourcing is not easy. Um, you know, outsourcing is not easy. Businesses have a lot of different nuances and details, and so getting the getting the getting the details and nuances right is uh, critically important. Oh yeah, it makes all the difference in the world because at the end of the day, the details are in the numbers. So exactly. I don't know, outsourcing that CFO right before you're going to go through a merger and acquisition yeah. might not be the best bet, but I get what you're saying. There's a lot of companies that definitely, yeah. I know a couple fractional CFOs myself, uh, fractional COOs that come in and, and help companies kind of get uh, things, systems and processes in place. So it's definitely uh, uh, something that people are, are looking into. The cost is just much more effective that way. All right, uh, Channing, before we head out, uh, you've gave us an given us a lot of information how can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more information the, so the uh the website that's scrolling across the bottom of the screen here is uh is a really nice way um to learn more about our firm and my contact info um, my contact info is on there and i think uh you can also see my email address right there so um feel free uh feel free to reach out happy to answer any questions or or talk about this stuff i you know really enjoy it and would love to hear from you I got one last question for you. Uh, we spend a lot of time creating content on uh, via podcasts. Um, what's probably the most valuable thing uh, or reason why you're going on different shows? What's the message that you're trying to get across to different audiences? I think that I, I touched on this a little a little bit at the beginning. I think you know we we work with a lot of business owners, either helping them understand kind of what their company is worth. Um, preparing for a transaction or on the investment bank inside of our business um, and helping business owners go through a transaction. And, you know, what, what we've, what we've seen time and time again is most business owners don't take the time and invest the resources to really prepare themselves personally and prepare their companies to, to be able to either raise money or sell their company at a premium. And so really excited about talking to business owners that are planning ahead for a transaction and helping them really think through and understand all of the pieces they need in order to make it successful. And so this, like, this, this pre-transaction planning is like a really critical thing that most private companies don't really put the time and attention into. And it can make a big difference when trying to raise money in terms of being successful or not, it can make a big difference when trying to sell in terms of being successful or not. And it can make a huge difference in terms of selling at an okay value versus selling at a premium value. And so this, this sort of pre-sale planning and education element um, is really something I'm excited about having people learn more about and helping people understand better. 
Boom. That's it, ladies and gents. I know there's a lot of you out there who are in a situation where maybe you got parents or family members that are ready to exit. They don't know what they're going to do with their business. And you sure as hell probably don't want that business. So you're going to want to reach out to somebody just like Channing. Website scrolling across the bottom, by the way, it is objectivecp.com. For those of you who are just on the audio, objectivecp.com. Find out what your company's worth. Find out what your family's looking at as far as gaining a, a sale or maybe merging it with another company or maybe it's something that you're looking into and maybe you don't want to start a business from scratch you want to buy something that's already fully functional and operational cash flow positive so these are opportunities that are all out there for you Channing thank you very much for coming on the show ladies and gents we'll catch you guys on the next one peace thanks for having me it's over go home is your business in need of marketing try starting a podcast but not just any podcast podcast like a pro we can show you how to take your business from being invisible to becoming a brand people trust. Go to www.businessbros.biz to get started today.